Well, Pastor Steve and I were able to go to the Shepherds Conference this past week, and uh, it was a delightful time, great fellowship together, as well as meeting up with several friends and people I didn't know were even going to be there. And uh, so thank you for your prayers for that. But no sooner than we got back late Thursday night, the trials began to, to hit. Uh, Caleb, as you know, is, uh, had to be taken to the ER uh, with unexplained symptoms uh, that are still undiscovered. Uh, in addition to fevers and sicknesses that were in my house throughout the week. And then last night, back in the ER, they've done an MRI. There's inconclusive results. So um, all that to say that I'm delighted to preach the Word of God, but then I'm trusting that I won't be distracted in the midst of what's going on. And there's many other things in our church as well going on right now. And um, I can't help but to think, uh, with the Lord doing so many wonderful things among us, the devil doesn't like that. And maybe he has gone to God and said, let me put some thorns, let me throw some stone, let me put some stumbling blocks for this congregation because the devil hates to see churches and around the Lord Jesus Christ prosper. But we know who's in ultimate control, and so we trust in him. Well, today the title of the message is The Scandal of Free Grace. We'll be taking a break from our series in 1 John We'll be in Mark chapter 2, and just think with me for a moment about modern-day scandals. Um, uh, even just think over the last year, you got the, the Russian uh, hacking scandals, the Hillary fainting scandal, did she really faint, did they really catch her, those kinds of things. You've got uh, the Sessions attorney general, now they're trying to pull him out. There's all the scandals about what he used to believe and things that he said. Even sporting scandals, deflate gate, you know, a, a while back, I think, what, a year or two ago, and now does Pete Rose get to go into the Hall of Fame or not? And scandals abound in our day, even within the church, sadly, with sad examples after examples of men falling morally. But also, probably the greatest scandal for the religious elite or those that think themselves to be righteous is that Christ would save sinners. The scandal of free grace. Why would I title the message that? Well, grace is undeserved favor. That God gives us favor. It's undeserved. It's free and that we can't work for it. We can't buy it. It comes to us freely by God. In our text, we'll see Levi, the tax collector, being called. Tax collectors were thought to be among the worst of sinners. Uh, IRS employees, and we have a few visitors. I, you may work for the IRS, but it's no secret that there's a stigma, right? And, and I mean, just for being an IRS uh, employee, but how much more a crooked one that goes about seeking to do wickedness. And today we have Matthew, ultimately, that's his, uh, who would write the first gospel, being called by Jesus. And the fact that Jesus dined and met with sinners infuriated the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again and again and again, you see through the Gospels that the religious elite were not happy about that. So let's read the text. If you'll turn to Mark 2, relatively short passage. I'm going to pick it up at verse 13 and read to verse 17. And he went out again to the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. 
And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called sinners such as us gathered here today in this house of worship. We thank you for your free grace. We thank you, Lord, that salvation does not depend upon us but your sovereign election and choosing and regenerating. Lord, we thank you that you've made us new creatures in Christ. And Lord, there may be some here who have yet to believe, who maybe thinks themselves to be righteous. Lord, I pray that you would have dealings by your spirit this very day. So meet with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just very quickly, the context of um, where we're at, um, Mark chapter 1 begins very abruptly and quickly. Jesus comes on the scene. He's driven into the wilderness, tempted by the devil. Of course, chapter 1, verse 15, the first words out of his mouth, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We see Jesus in this opening chapter casting out demons, touching leopards, exercising compassion upon those that need his forgiving love. And then in chapter two begins really five encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, five encounters that, that challenge the authority of Jesus, in particular, his authority to forgive sins and interpret the law. And chapter two, verse two, there's a large crowd. This is where the paralytic is healed. Uh, there's a large crowd. They're, they're trying to get the paralytic inside but they can't because of the crowd. So they remove the roof tiles and drop him down from the middle of the roof. There's a persistent faith that they, that they uh, demonstrate in getting him in front of Jesus. But then, of course, verse 5, you see Jesus seeing their faith said to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven. Something that you wouldn't expect. Why in the world is he saying that? He's coming to be healed. But he says, your sins have been forgiven. The great physician deals with man's greater need, the forgiveness of our sins. The real miracle is that sinful man can have his sins forgiven. That's the real miracle. Not that the paralytic got up and picked up his bed and walked. The real miracle is that God would forgive your sins and your sins and my sins. Well, in our text today, much like that section of which we don't have time to read, verses 1 to 12, the focus is on sin and forgiveness exclusion and acceptance. And you can almost anticipate the sparks about to fly with this conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. The scandal in our text today is that Jesus would accept someone who is not acceptable to the religious elite. You know, they've, they've created all these extra laws and all of that. That's why we read Mark 7 in our scripture reading. 
That's the real scandal to the Pharisees, that Jesus would dine with sinners. Well, my purpose is that we would marvel at the free grace of God and that God may be pleased to stir in some of your hearts who have yet to believe. So we're going to look at this text, verses 14 to 17, under four heads. You children, taking notes, your parents are going to ask you, I hope, later. Very simple, four Ds, okay, for each verse. First of all, grace determined in verse 14, the calling of Matthew to follow. Grace demonstrated the feasting with sinners and loving on them and being with them. Third, grace disputed the Pharisees down their long noses saying, what in the world is he doing? And then finally, grace described, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So first of all, grace determined, verse 14. Um, Jesus, uh, as we learned in verse 13, returns again to the seashore after that situation in the house with the paralytic. Uh, there he is passing by. This is sort of his, his headquarters, as it were, around the Sea of Galilee. And he's passing by. And by the way, the Gospels note so much of what Jesus, not so much what he says, even though that's recorded, but what he does. He's engaged in ministry, and the Gnostic Gospels are really a collection of sayings that Jesus supposedly said that add to Scripture, and that's why they're easily rejected. By contrast, Mark devotes most of his Gospel to the activity of Jesus and exercising compassion upon those that need it. And as an itinerant teacher and preacher, he is teaching the word of God. He's preaching the word of God. The gospel is not something merely spoken. It is something that is lived. It is, as it were, with Christ, an incarnation. Jesus is not sitting around taking phone calls, but he's actively out there making disciples and calling them to follow him. Well, he invites this notorious tax collector, Levi, as he's called, to follow him. You might remember um, John and earlier in Mark, there's the, the, the um, account of Sam, Simon and Andrew and James and John being called from their fishing business. I will make you fishers of men, follow me. Well, here again, he comes to Matthew and calls him to follow me. It's a summons, a, a term that's used increasingly throughout the Gospels as a call to discipleship. It's synonymous with faith, Mark faith, Mark 10, 52. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and we're following him. Well, as I said, Capernaum was sort of his uh, uh, headquarters for the Galilean ministry. And so as he would go into homes, come out of homes, he's around the sea, a very common scene. Well, what does that have to do with why is Matthew here? Well, it was a center Roads would pass by and cross by. There were Roman uh, troops stationed there uh, that, that gave economic activity and prosperity. And then Levi was there not to collect the land or the poll tax. That was collected directly by the Romans. But taxes on transported goods would be collected, usually by a Jew, before the Jew would be the collector for the Romans. And so collecting taxes from citizens as well as merchants that were passing through town. Tax collectors were expected to take a commission on what they collected. That's how they got paid. Do these, do these collections, keep X amount, 
But why were they so despised and hated? It's because they would fatten that commission and take so much more than what they were supposed to. They were greedy. John the Baptist talks to them. You remember in Matthew chapter 3, repent. John Calvin said, in the readiness and eagerness of Matthew to obey, we see the divine power of the word of Christ that affected Matthew. Simple words. What is, Jesus is just passing by and says, follow me. And he gets up and follows Christ. A glorious picture of the power of God. And it's not that all those who hear in their ears the call to come to Christ, that they are saved, but it's those who God has chosen and by the power of God quickens by his Spirit. Matthew threw off every hindrance and followed Christ. Paul gives that analogy in 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may what? Please the one who enlisted him. Jesus calls someone with a questionable background and character, and he comes in contact with unclean persons. Look up in chapter 1 and verse 40. A leper comes to Jesus, beseeching him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Look at the next words in verse 41. Moved with compassion. A leper, perhaps nubs for fingers, the whiteness of the skin, the changing of the skin, the being a cast out and being not allowed around people. Jesus says, I am willing be cleansed as he touches him, an unclean leper. What a picture of God's compassion to unworthy sinners. So this tax collector is both morally bankrupt and ritually unclean, and yet Christ calls him. I've used this illustration before, but back in the Renaissance around the year 1500, there was a huge chunk of marble taken to Florence, Italy, put in a churchyard, and the famous Italian sculptor Donatello was to make a statue. But as he's inspecting it and looking at it and seeing the the, the cracks and the flaws, he rejected it and said, I'm not going to use that chunk of marble. There's too many flaws in it. Well, there it sat in the churchyard for a couple of years until another sculptor came and looked at it and analyzed it and saw these imperfections, but saw beyond those imperfections and could see something that could be made. Well, for two years, this particular artist worked very hard until finally in 1504, it's unveiled. And of course, it's Michelangelo's David Well, Jesus saw Levi's flawed and sinful life. He knows everything about Levi, all the improprieties, all the greediness, all the the misjudging of weights and measures and taking more than, than he's supposed to. Jesus knew all of that. He was indeed a wretched sinner, but he also has the artist's eye as the second person of the Holy Trinity to see the potential of one being made a new creature in Christ, infused with the Spirit of God, and being made new through transformation. A metamorphosis, as it were. A dead sinner with no life, no spiritual life whatsoever within him, being made alive is something that is altogether glorious. But... God, though we were dead in our sins, but God being what? Rich in mercy. 
saves us. One of the Puritans says, grace turns counters into gold, pebbles into pearls, sickness into health, weakness into strength, and and needs into abundance. The grace of God has come to Matthew, a tax collector, one that has done nothing to please God in his entire life. And so we see grace determined. Jesus is determined to exercise his free grace towards unworthy sinners. Secondly, grace demonstrated, verse 15. Come with me again as I read this section and notice the repetitions that are here. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. Levi's house became a place of feasting and celebration. We see a wonderful, spontaneous expression of joy as Levi, as it were, throws a party. It's a banquet. It's a great banquet. It's a little bit more than just a hot dog cookout. It's a banquet. It's a feasting hall. He invites his co-workers and other fellow tax collectors to come. And Jesus is reclining at the table as the customary way of eating in the Jewish culture at that time. Luke 5.29 says, And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. And the scribes and the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's Luke's account. This is a great banquet. It's a big reception. There are many people. It's mentioned twice in our text. This isn't four friends getting together for dinner. There's abundance and quality in the things that are being served. It's a lavish banquet. Sitting together with Jesus, our text says. There they are. The Son of God, holy, sinless, and yet he's flocked all around with sinners. What an amazing picture this is. What, what do you think? Why does, why does God reveal this by through his Holy Spirit, through the pen of Mark, to show us this? There were many of them. It's repeated twice. Jesus calls and reclines with the undeserving. And maybe one thing you could do as we go through the rest of this message is to think, where are you, and I hate to say this, but where are you in this story? Are you the religious elite looking down your nose? Look at that guy who professes to be a believer, yet he's feasting with all of these sinners. Or are you one of these sinners with nothing in your hand you bring, but you're blessed because Christ has come to you. Jesus in his ministry, sinners flocked to him. There was something different about him compared to the religious rulers of the day. In Luke 15, you have those three beautiful parables there, ending with the prodigal son. But as it begins in Luke 15, 1, it says, Now all of the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. John, or John records Jesus is saying, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So Jesus is here 
reclining with sinners. He comes in contact with lepers and the Mary Magdalene's and with seven demons and touches and heals her as well. Listen to B.B. Warfield. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to him or God through him ever alter. No matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in Christian behavior may be, it is always his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. There is never anything that we are or have or do that can take his place We are always unworthy. We are still in ourselves just miserable sinners. Miserable sinners saved by grace to be sure, but miserable sinners still deserving in ourselves nothing but everlasting wrath. It's his blood and righteousness imputed to our account. Unworthy sinners who have nothing to offer to God, but We are made holy by his work on the cross. As he took all of our sin upon himself and his perfect righteousness is imputed to our account. The basis for table fellowship, as it's sometimes described in the word of God, is forgiveness of sins and anticipates that future messianic banquet where we will be with him around the table. Revelation 19.9 And he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see at the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.20, Christ recorded as saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and this is not regards to salvation, Um, (laughs) uh, but if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will dine with him and he with me. What about you? Do you spend time with those in the world Do you engage in conversation with those who are not exactly like you? Look, Jesus didn't go about his earthly ministry in some protective bubble with with secret police all around him, so he would never come into contact with those that were unclean. Jesus himself is in the dirt, as it were, with sinners making spittle and healing by the power of his word and touching lepers mingling with sinners and even feasting with them. And yet our 21st century Christianity is so radically different, isn't it? It's, it's in an enclosed automobile. The garage door opener opens. You slip into the garage, the garage door closes. I haven't seen a neighbor for six months and that kind of thing. That's the mentality these days. And there's a danger in seeking to escape so much from the world and isolating your life. Well, let me just amplify a little bit on this. How do we do this practically? Well, only spending time with Christians. And I'm going to make some qualifications, so follow along with me. Never mingling with the unconverted can also lead to showing partiality. Steve has been going through the book of James, and you might remember his expositions in James 2 some time ago, where it says in verse 1, my brethren, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a man, a poor man in dirty clothes, you pay special attention to the one wearing fine clothes. You sit here in the good place, but you tell the poor, you go stand over there or sit by my footstool. 
In verse 9, he goes on here, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This whole withdrawal mentality, oh, it can be, certainly we're to protect our families and to protect our children. I'm not negating that in any way, shape, or form. But are we fostering such a withdrawal mentality that we never come into contact with the lost? Have you ever considered, what is the means that God may have for me in winning the lost? A co-worker, a neighbor, in the marketplace. What is the means that God, oh, well, we know he's sovereign. He can just regenerate them. No, but he uses means. And it might be your words, sharing the words of life with those who need it. Moving to the mountains mentality, you know, we're to homeschool and with, cut out all influences. And I think that cutting out influences early age is actually very, very good. But there comes a time when your children need to become adults. And if you never, ever have them around unconverted people, and there they go out of your house at 18, 19, 20 years old, whatever it is, and off to college, they're going to be swooped up by the world. They need to learn how to defend their faith, engage with sinners, even be used of God to bring the glorious gospel to the lost. Some have extreme views and and all these different things in regards to what the Christian family should look like. Positively, how can you and your children be salt and light? It's not going into a closet and turning the light on. Nobody can see through the walls of your house and see that you're letting your light shine inside of your closet. It's going out into the world and letting your light shine. Now, again, I'm not suggesting putting your family in danger, but as they get older, to take them with you on opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. Take them with you to the Planned Parenthoods when you, as you seek to bring the community aware of the slaughter and the murder that takes place within inside so that they, they have a real picture of the wickedness of the world in which we live. And the only hope for that wicked world is the good news of the gospel. I'm so glad our men often go to Balboa Park seeking to offer the good news of the gospel. And some of us bring our our children and our teenagers in that format. Don't be afraid of spending time with coworkers or neighbors. If you have an opportunity to let your light shine or at the water cooler, you may have an opportunity. Someone's life is falling apart and the wife is divorcing them and the kids are in trouble and all of this. Maybe God has sent you there to hear that, that you might offer good news. Young people, various opportunities in schools or homeschool groups or whatever, don't get a part of these cliques, but mingle with other people. Our midweek community groups are meant to foster this very thing. Bring someone that's not saved. Let them come around to see how how believers interact and truly love one another and pray for one another. There's several midweek groups to choose from. Invite them to come Sunday to hear the Word of God preached. Several of you have done that, even in recent weeks. The important thing here is that Jesus did not go around that room in Levi's house and say, can you tell me your profession of faith before I sit down and eat with you? (laughs) He didn't do that. He knew that they were sinners, but there he was demonstrating love and genuine interest in them. 
This is a scandal of free grace, according to the self-righteous Pharisees. That he would be there. And we forget what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. So quick to point the finger. This guy, that guy, this girl. We need to realize the gravity of our own sin before a holy God. Well, we've seen grace determined, the calling of Matthew. Grace demonstrated, feasting with sinners. Now grace disputed, verse 16. It says, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Grace disputed. The self-righteous Pharisees were annoyed and perturbed that this Jesus, who just had come on the scene, it was claiming to be the one sent by God, the promised Messiah, is feasting with sinners. You can almost picture the scene. The scribes and the Pharisees there in the house of Levi, perhaps back by the back porch or something, but enough to see into the main area where everyone is gathered there, observing the motley crew, but standing at a distance, nitpicking everything that Jesus said, everything that was happening there. The Pharisees are making judgments based on externals. I know he's a tax collector. He must be a sinner, right? That's what they're doing. They're making judgments based on externals. They ask the question to the disciples, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? They couldn't get their mind around that. In other words, the sinners and tax collectors, they are the non-observant Jews that did not practice all the pharisaical rules and laws, and therefore they were transgressors of the law in their eyes. The issue for the Pharisees may have been one of purity, I saw these people come in. They didn't wash their hands. They didn't go through all these steps and so forth. Because eating is mentioned twice here. Isaiah 65, who say, keep to yourself. Do not come to me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils and a fire that burns all day. Self-righteousness condemned. The Pharisees thought that they were more like God. Defilement could be anything in regards to food or eating or or the place that this was taking place. But uh, Jesus corrects their understanding in that Mark 7, if we were to go on and read. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries. Matthew 15, why do you and your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. You see, in the eyes of the moral uh, or the religious experts, the scandal here is not that he called sinners to repent, but that he summoned them to join him without repentance. Now, of course, we know Christ is getting, we'll get to that. But the, the idea and the big scandal here for the Pharisees is that he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. But the free grace of God... Just think of your own personal testimony when you were converted. The free grace of God comes to you when you are hopeless, when you are helpless, when you've got nothing to offer God. He comes in mercy and with great power and opens your eyes to the things of God. 
And he conquers our hearts with this powerful converting grace and we are transformed so that as we'll sing later, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Are you prone to legalistically judging others? I had to challenge myself with this. I'm I'm simply challenging you with it. The Pharisees judged, grumbled, complained. John 6, 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. Again and again we see that throughout the Gospels. How do you know you're judgmental? Well, do you... Struggle with pride, looking down upon others? Do you judge by externals? Do you exercise favoritism? You know, as it says in James 2. Luke 18, I'm not going to read the whole account, but the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee says, he stood by praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. Brothers and sisters, beware of legalism. Legalism says that we can't earn or keep God's favor by what we do. It produces a self-made authority that you come up with your own standard and that becomes law. And you want to enforce that upon others. All of Colossians 2, most of Colossians 2 addresses this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men than according to Christ. It could involve food, it could involve drink, it could involve G, PG, movies, various things, music, dress code, whether you wear a tie, whether you don't wear a tie, whether you have tattoos, you don't have tattoos, whether you have a piercing, and all of this in every other area of Christian liberty in the church, whether you use this or that or whatever. Legalism cries, I do and I cannot do, but the gospel boldly declares, I can't do what Jesus did for me. Legalism causes ugly divisions among well-meaning Christians, trampling upon others. It harshly squashes grace and mercy and humility and persistently seeks to enforce its standard of law. Ultimately, legalism is an attack on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are accepted by God because of the work of Christ as unworthy sinners. Jesus spent time with whoever wanted to hear his message, the poor, the sick, the lame, the blind. He was there offering the words of life. The scandal of this story, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus does not make a moral repentance as a precondition of his love and acceptance of them. Instead, he loves and accepts sinners as they are. We too should look for opportunities to befriend those that need Christ, to share the words of hope that we have with them. 
Is there people in your life that you neglect? Maybe it's that neighbor that's out watering when you're driving in and you say, ooh, i got to do the garage door really quick this time and get in and pull the garage door down. Uh, maybe it's other situations in the workplace. I'm not going to take my lunch at this time because I know that person's in there and his life's falling apart. I don't want to hear about it again. I'll go do this or I'll stay at my desk. Whatever the situation, are there people that you are ignoring and running away from that God may have placed in your life specifically so that you could share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fruits of repentance are, and are the natural consequence of those who are truly saved. We see that with Zacchaeus later in Luke 19. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. Fruits of repentance. Well, we've seen grace determined, grace demonstrated, grace disputed by the Pharisees, and now finally grace described more briefly. Verse 17, after hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, we see here Jesus comes to know those who are sick with their sin. The Pharisees asked the disciples, remember in verse 16, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, who has, who hears all and is omniscient, could hear even from a distance and turns to them and gives them this statement. First a proverb in the third person and then a statement in the first person. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Both focus on those who are in need, The proverb makes the point in a metaphoric language of physical illness. The second squarely deals with the issue of sin, which has been the focus of this whole section even earlier in chapter 2. To call sinners in the context of a meal and to invite to a social gathering. The irony here is, that it did not, he did not come to call the righteous. And the Pharisees thought themselves to be righteous. They're the religious elite. They're the ones at the top of the class, the top of the ladder, as it were. Romans 5.20, the law came so that the transgression would increase. Sorry, the law came so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Spurgeon says, the Lord may not give gold but he will give grace. He may not give gain, but he will give grace. Jesus has nothing to offer you, my friend, if you sit here today thinking yourself to be righteous. Thinking yourself, maybe not those words righteous, but that overall I'm a pretty good person. When you compare myself to others, there's nothing that he has to offer you. The statement says it very clearly. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, and he is the great physician to heal the disease of your soul, the leprosy of your sin. But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, those that admit that they are wicked sinners. Your thought life, 
your actions, the things you've done when no one else has seen, that you cannot on that day of judgment stand before God and say, I've done nothing wrong. We are all guilty. Such people are self-righteous, and it is an affront unto a holy God. Job told his friends in a similar situation, but you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. Jesus' call of Levi and other sinners graphically displays what we see in Romans chapter 9, the end. Paul is dealing with the sovereignty of God in 9, 10, and 11, and he's dealing, talking about the Gentiles and the Jews. It says this in verse 20, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, notice this, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. The righteousness of God escapes those who seek to establish their own righteousness But those who know that they are morally bankrupt, that they have nothing to offer God, that they are outcasts, he comes and he offers forgiveness of sin. Well, brethren, we've seen grace determined, grace demonstrated, grace disputed by the the Pharisees, and grace described that he's come to save sinners. A couple of points of application. Do you long for table fellowship, especially among other believers? Times of Christian fellowship and being together strengthens us and equips us so that then we can go out into a world and be useful. Times of table fellowship, connecting with other believers is strengthening and emboldens us to take the gospel out. Do you make fellowship with God's people a priority or are you a Sunday stamp in, clock in, clock out type of Christian? We need to make use this week. There's men's theology groups and accountability women's groups. There's there's all sorts of groups. There's Friday night apologetic groups. There's men's breakfasts. There's community groups. There's all kinds of opportunities to get together with other believers. I realize we all can't do everything, but we should be looking for something beyond the Sunday Lord's Day worship. Those who really understand the implications of the gospel will be motivated to take that gospel out to a lost and dying world. Brethren, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We should want to share it. And I'm so thankful for so many of our ministries at this church focus on taking the gospel out. The rescue mission with among the ladies, the ladies that go there faithfully month after month after month for over 10 years now. Balboa Park, Turning Point a pregnancy resource center, and other opportunities that we are out there. As I look out today, there's really two types of people. Those that know that they are sinners, and they've got nothing to offer God, and they accept freely the grace of God, and those that think that they are self-righteous. Yeah, there's those who know that they are sinners, and those that think they are good people. Sinclair Ferguson observes this, those who are the most conscious of forgiveness are invariably those who have been most acutely convicted of their sin. What our great need is to have a sensitive conscience before God and to know when we've sinned, when we've, when we've, 
Well, we've missed the mark, as it were. And we've been convicted by the Holy Spirit, and we come confessing and forsaking, as we've been learning in 1 John. Remember verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous, His righteous character, right? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Good news of the gospel is that he is the great physician that heals the disease of our soul. Don't go to the quacks out there and, and you know listen to the worldly wise men to keep this list of rules, then you'll be okay. No, because we will fail. You may think you need money and health and fame, success and romance, a spouse, and then you'll really be happy. No, that's the wrong diagnosis. Find your satisfaction in God. We read, Brian read earlier from Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The abundance of the free grace of the gospel But this second group, maybe you are like the scribes. You believe yourself to be good, morally good and upright. And I mean, you obey the laws of the land. You pay your taxes. You give to charity. You volunteer 10 hours a week at the hospital. You do all of these things. You don't lust within your heart. You don't look at pornography. Outwardly, you are morally upright. But spiritually, you're bankrupt before a holy God. You fail to see that your heart is depraved. And if you're honest with yourself, you will admit that there is such wickedness in your own heart that you deserve judgment. Sometimes we can become proud about doctrine or the clothes that we wear or whatever. We need to repent of such foolishness and repent of anything that hints of self-righteousness and embrace Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for this glorious account that is here. We thank you, Lord, for... Jesus demonstrating his free grace to unworthy sinners. Lord, we thank you for even the testimony of the four Gospels that we have. Help us to understand the Gospel, O God. Especially in light of our own unworthiness, Lord, help us to understand the implications of the Gospel that we would take this life-changing message to turn the world upside down 2,000 years ago and be a light before a dark world. Lord, we thank you for what you are doing in so many, what you're doing through this church. We give you such glory for that. We thank you that you are still in the business of saving sinners. Lord, help us to meditate upon this message. Help us to think about its implications in the days and weeks to come, all to the end that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.